I want to just say that I'm, I'm very thankful for this congregation, thankful for an opportunity to be your pastor, thankful for these times we've had together in learning about the Bible, thankful for the opportunity to just come and worship together. I get behind the piano there and play, and I can't see faces, and I don't need to. I'm all right. Um, but I trust that uh, as we sing the songs that, that you're just, queuing into to God, just focusing on Him, and I just have enjoyed being able to do those things, and uh, just thank God for that. Yeah, we've got a great group, and uh, um, feel I feel the the uh, support and love from this congregation, and I just I just want to say uh, you guys are our incredible group, and uh, just continue to be obedient to God, serve Him, uh, but it's it's good to be here together. Good to come, you know, whatever your week is held, it's just good to gather together like this, sing praises to God, seek His face, be able to do those things. Do you, do you realize, though, when you step in this sanctuary, and it's not just because this is a special place or whatever, but when you, when you come in here, basically you, you're in the presence and, and listening to the voice of God, listening to Him. He may, he may speak to you through a song. He may speak to you through the message. He may speak to you as you sit there and, and quietly uh, wait upon Him. As the Holy Spirit speaks to you, we are, we are here in the presence of God. The presence of God, the one who spoke this world into, into existence, uh, the creator of the universe, the one who breathes out billions and billions, uh, billions of stars. Uh, you probably remember... Uh, the star, maybe you don't, but the largest star that's been discovered, I think there's one bigger than this right now, but the V.Y. Canis Majoris, it is gigantic, huge. This star is so big, and this number probably you can't fathom it, but this, this star is so big that three quadrillion, 729 trillion Earths would fit inside it. That's just hard to comprehend. Let me help you wrap your brain around this a little bit more. If you think of a penny, and you see a lot of them around, pennies are all around us. If there was, if you had one quadrillion pennies, um, you, good luck there, but they, they would weigh over three billion tons. Three billion tons. Now, the tons. <laughs> We're not talking pounds, we're talking tons, three billion tons. And when you would stack those pennies, whoever would be able to do that, it would be over 986 million miles high. Okay, now you're thinking, <laughs> that's beyond my comprehension. What are you talking about? It would basically be uh, going to our sun and back to the earth um, 5.3 times. 5.3 times. That's how far. Good luck stacking that set of pennies. Yeah, that, that star is really, really big. And that's just one star that our God simply breathed out of his mouth. As Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. It's a good thing to remind ourselves of the incredible greatness and majesty of the God whose presence we are in, whose name we just worshiped, and whose word we have gathered to hear. Let me read some of God's word here to head us in the right direction of our message today. Um, you can write down the reference 
and then look them up later for yourself as well. And I apologize as far as a PowerPoint, I didn't get that prepared, ready to go fully. So you're just going to have to tune in today and not get all the glittery eye candy behind me. So Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. It says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We've heard this before. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we, when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. And then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. By the Holy Spirit. Let's pray real quick right now. Lord, I ask that you would just continue to open our hearts, our minds, our ears to your message today. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be ready to put it into practice, whatever you have for us today. And just thank you, Lord, for your message and speaking to our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. So we are in the fourth week, the fourth Sunday of a series of messages about understanding the Bible. Now, I do need to stop for a moment and just let you know that this whole series has been preached by a pastor back east. And this whole series actually is where I'm getting a lot of this information. If someone else has dug it up, someone else has done the research, then great, I want to use that. And I believe this is helpful for us to be able to see this Bible as we need to understand it. So a lot of this detail, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the, the information here I'm expressing to you, I had help <laughs> by, by a pastor um, back east. Anyway, so I just wanted to let you know that. I need to let you know those things because uh, uh, moving ahead from here on, it's important to understand. Uh, I, I do what I can with, the, with what the time I have to be able to research these things, but uh, I love to have help along the way. And uh, it's, this is very helpful. So we're trying to understand the words that this, this universe creating, this star-breathing God breathed out to us and for us. So let me remind you of the two goals that we've spoken of already about this series and what we're doing. Again, to, to take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is not just another book or mere ink on paper, but that is really from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And the other goal is to motivate, to, to encourage, to challenge, and to inspire each of us to read the Bible like never before. So here's something that nece isn't necessarily good, but it's unfortunately true, a statement. Many believers do not read God's Word, the Bible, on much of a regular basis. It's, it's a statement that's rather true, 
among believers. And why is that? Well, there's a couple reasons. You know, one reason is that it's, it's kind of hard, hard to understand. You get into some passages and you're going, okay, I'll wait until Sunday for Pastor Jim to explain it. Or I'll wait until Sunday night and I can ask someone at church or whatever. Uh, ask Mike Grimm because he's the Bible te- teacher and he knows all these things. <laughs> it's hard to understand, especially when you get into the Revelation and Daniel and stuff like that. And you're going, what is he talking about here? You need a Philip to come alongside you and say, let me explain these scriptures to you. It's hard to understand. It's also, too, that maybe they really don't believe that it is from God. Some of them doubt that this Bible is really the Word of God. Now, if you were handed an envelope with a letter in it, you knew that it was from God, and this letter, God tells you about Himself. He tells about life, about salvation, about how to live life to its fullest, and about how to have a guaranteed forever in an unimaginable, perfect place as opposed to a forever without him in a terrible place, would you open up that letter? Would you, would you read what it says? That's what I'm hoping this series will help you do, to open up his love letter to you, motivated to, uh, to read it, be encouraged, be challenged and inspired to read the Bible like never before, because... It really is from God. Now, remember, we talked about how the Bible is unique and and accurate and supernatural and transformational. And then we talked about the Bible's overriding theme and purpose and storyline. It's the coming of Christ. And then last Sunday, we talked about the, the, the canon of the Bible, canonization, about how we can be totally confident that our Bibles contain the books that God intended. No books are missing, and there are not any books in there that should not be in there. Now today, as we continue to work on the goal of of looking at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is not just another book, but that it's really from God, we're going to talk about the exciting topic of the transmission of the text. Inspirational one, altars are filled when that is preached. (laughs) Exciting stuff. Oh, and and by the way, you car lovers out there, this has nothing to do with clutches, gears, or the automatic versus manual transmission debate. Not talking about that transmission, but the transmission of the text. So how do we know that what we have is what Matthew and John and, and, and Paul actually wrote? The skeptics are out there in force, and they're attacking the text of the Bible that are are, that we're trying to base our lives on and, and, and put our hope in. For example, and I mentioned him before, Dan Brown, in his fictional work, excuse me, fictional work or book, The Da Vinci Code, he claims, which he claims is based on facts, uh, he writes this. He says, The Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Really? Okay, how does that statement settle with you? Maybe you've heard through various sources about how the Bible has maybe been corrupted. You happen to be on YouTube and you see something about that. You go, oh, that looks interesting. You click on it and listen to it and you go, whoa, (laughs) what's this guy talking about? The Bible? It's corrupted or can't be trusted? What do they mean by corrupted? 
What does he mean by corrupt? It, basically, any variation or alteration of the text, even a spelling error, that's being corrupted. Another guy named Bart Ehrman. He's an agnostic New Testament scholar, which is, sounds... I don't understand that title. But an agnostic New Testament scholar, pretty well-known Bible critic, actually, of the day. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, Who Changed the Bible and Why? He says this. He says, There are more differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Wow, that's quite a statement. There are more differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. How, does, how do you feel about that statement? Feel pretty confident about the Bible you have in your hands there? What if I told you that it's a true statement? Heretic, get him off the platform. But actually, not the whole truth. It's a true statement, but not the whole truth. Sometimes a partial truth can lead to people believing a whole lie. That's why we need to be ready. We need to study this, this book. Not just inside of it, but about it as well. And that's what we're trying to do on these Sundays. But sometimes a partial truth can lead to people believing a whole lie. For example, when Becky and I uh, took the kids when they were younger to go to the coast, we would often visit the Tide Pool Pub in Depot Bay for some drinks. How does that settle with you guys? What do you think about that statement? Pastor Jim and his family go into a bar? What? And what if I told you that it was true? We did. It is true, but it's not the whole truth. You see, and some of you probably already know, the whole truth is that my mom worked at the Tide Pool Pub as a cook. And when we would go to the coast, we would usually stop at the Tide Pool Pub during what they called family hours. Families could come in during that time. And we would visit with Grandma. And we'd have some pizza and some pop drinks. You see, the whole truth is that situation that I presented, my mom being there, and that's what the biblical skeptics do. They, they, they only give the partial truth. They only tell you part of the truth, and then they tell it in such a skilled and deceptive way that it leads many people into believing a lie. Did you hear about that one verse? Oh my goodness, where'd that come from? It contradicts everything else in the Bible. Better throw it away. Because when the skeptics know more about this stuff than we do, we are extremely vulnerable to their attacks. They're counting on our ignorance. They're counting on us going, well, we just believe it because we do. And we have no reason. We have no solid reason. Evidence. We're doing this study so that we can give an intelligent response to the skeptic. As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. We need to be ready. So, since most of the, it, their attacks about the transmission of the text are against the New Testament, that's where we're going to focus our, our time here today. So, how is the text transmitted? And I left, uh, I didn't leave, I guess, uh, Stephanie left room for you in the back of the bulletin there to take some notes. 
I figured you'd probably take your own notes. You don't need to have the fill it ins unless you're that type of person that need those things. But I'm going to let you go ahead and be creative. So how is the text transmitted? Step one, step one is that God breathed and the apostles wrote the New Testament documents. So God inspired it. The, the, the apostles wrote it, the New Testament documents. Now they wrote in the mid to late first century, written in a relatively short period of time, in different locations and for different audiences. And, and we've talked a little bit about that already. And the originals, like directly from the hand of Paul or directly from the hand of John, don't exist. We, do, we, we don't have them because they were written on papyrus, which did not last long and were probably handled a lot. And maybe if they had survived, maybe they have become objects of worship. So, so step one is God breathed and the apostles wrote the New Testament documents. Step two, that the New Testament documents then are copied. New Testament documents are copied. Now, these documents were copied a lot, and they were copied in a lot of different places. These early Christians in the first century and second century popularized what is known as the Codex, C-O-D-E-X, Codex. And basically, instead of writing on a scroll, and you had to roll on out, this would be writing on both sides of paper, and then binding it together in a book called a Codex. But we need to realize that there was no central human authority controlling these copies, and as, man, as these manuscripts were copied, you would get what is called a variant. And what is a variant? I'm glad you asked. Basically, a variant is... Well, suppose, suppose I would say this statement. Pastor Jim is wearing a tie. Okay, I am. What if this other statement was right next to it? Jim is wearing a tie. Do you see the variant there? you hear the variant? Pastor Jim or Jim. Sometimes there are variants like that. So if you gather up all the New Testament manuscripts that we have today and compare the different texts with each other, you wouldn't have a thousand or ten thousand or even a hundred thousand variants, things like I described. There are somewhere around four hundred thousand variants between the different manuscripts, 400,000. You're probably thinking right now, great, Pastor Jim, how is this encouraging? <laughs> uh, my anxiety level is still up here. Especially after I tell you that there are only about 138,000 words in the entire Greek New Testament. 400,000 variants and 138,000 words. Oh, we are in trouble, huh? Just like uh, that agnostic New Testament uh, scholar says, Bart Arman says, there are more differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Um, yeah, yeah. So your next thought, your next thought might be, does this mean that every word of the Bible is in question? Yeah, I, I've got my Bible open right now. Am I, uh, do I, am I confident that these are the words of God here? Or is there some change that went on and I really don't have what actually God's word was? That's what the skeptics want you to think. But remember, they are not being totally truthful in all of it. They're only telling you part of the story, like our occasional visit to Depot Bay at the tide pool. 
It's interesting to think that if these same skeptics treated all of the historical records like they treat the Bible in regard to the transmission of the text, they would have to throw out all of history. There's a lot of things that don't quite match up. Anyway, let's look at these variants in, in two categories. And this is what you'll be uh, probably taking notes on here. But the two, two categories, one is the quantity of variants. The quantity of variants. And that's why are there so many? Why are there so many of these variants? So we'll look at the quantity of variants. And then we'll look at the quality of variants. What types are there? So first, the quantity of variants. Why are there so many variants among all of our manuscripts, all those handwritten copies? The main reason for there being so many variants is because we have so many copies of manuscripts. The Greek manuscripts, there are about 5,800 manuscripts. Some are large and some are smaller, but with the average size of about 450 pages long. So in total, we have about 2.6 million pages of text. In the Latin manuscripts, the second century, there's about 10,000 of those. Other manuscripts that involve uh, Coptic and Syriac and Gothic and Aramaic and Arabic and Hebrew, they're between 5,000 and 10,000 copies. So altogether, we have between about 20,000 to 25,000 handwritten manuscripts that we can look at and compare, which is actually a very good thing. We want as many manuscripts as possible. Think of it this way. <clears throat> Imagine that I put up a document on the screen back here, and Chris was the only person who was able to um, copy it down, word for word, all that, as best she could, before I got rid of the original message. And then Neil comes up from, from downstairs into the sanctuary after checking the score of the Dallas Cowboy game. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. <laughs> and he looks at the copy that Chris shows him, and he, sa he says, how do, I, how, do, how do I know she got it right? And the answer is, we don't. <laughs> We don't know. We only have one copy. Sure, there are no variants because there's just one copy, but yet there's no confidence that Chris got it right. But now let's say that 10 people copied the document. Then we could gather those 10 copies. We can compare them. We say, oh, look, this copy missed a line here, uh, but the other nine right here had that line, so we trust that the line was originally there because of these other nine copies. Or we say, oh, this copy has the word stall instead of the word tall, but the other nine had the word tall, so we're going to go with tall. Must have missed a letter there. So let's say that we have 10,000 copies. See how our confidence on, on what is the, in the original increases by having more copies to compare? And the number of variants increases because you have more people copying and more opportunities for those differences. So a large number of variants is the result of having a large number of manuscripts, which is a very good thing. Listen to what happens when we compare this large number of manuscripts that we have to what some of those other classic Greek writers have. 
The average classical Greek writer has about 15 manuscript copies. Now, if you stack them up, it would be about four feet high. About four feet high. Do you know how high all the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament would be if you stacked them up? Here's some, another fun number. Four and a half Empire State buildings tall. Wow. Or about one and a quarter miles long. So we have a whole lot more manuscripts than the classical Greek writers by about a mile. <laughs> and not only that, but the time gap between when the original was written and the date of the first copy with the New Testament is so much smaller, while the number of copies is so much greater. And the time gap is so much smaller when compared to other classical Greek writers and all, and all the other ancient literature. The average Greek classic waits about 500 years to get its first fragment, while the New Testament has fragments within decades and a full copy within 225 years. Homer's Iliad waited for 1,900 years before it was the first full copy. And still, we don't question that too much, do we? The oldest manuscript, maybe you've heard of it before, it's called a fragment, uh, it's called P52, P standing for papyrus, and it's uh, from the Gospel of John. It was discovered around 1934, and it's the size of a credit card, basically. And uh, up until that time, the critical scholars said that the Gospel of John was written sometime in the late 2nd century, and therefore was just a forgery. John never wrote it. Now, on one side of this, this uh, fragment, this P52 fragment, has John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, and the flip side of it, being a codex, has John 18, verses 37 and 38. It has been dated to be in the early 100s or 90s. So, I think we have something there. So, the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts, and again, that's a good thing. And the New Testament time gap blows away the competition by centuries. And if the skeptics were intellectually honest and treated the classical Greek and other ancient historical writings the way they treat the New Testament, they would have to throw it all away. But they don't. They don't expect them to tell everyone what the, uh, the writings of, uh, that the writings of Plato and Aristotle and Homer must be thrown out. <laughs> um, but you can expect them to keep going after the New Testament, even though one of its chief critics uh, admits, Bart Ehrman, the same agnostic New Testament scholar, he says the New Testament is the earliest attested document in all of antiquity. Okay, yeah, you're right. He's, he's got that right. But they have an agenda to undermine Christ, the gospel, the Bible, the church, and the truth. You need to be on guard. Be ready. So let's look at the, the quality of the variants real quick, and this you're going to have to follow along carefully with me on this one. But what type of variants are there? What's, what's there to look at? Of the 400,000 variants, over 99% do not matter at all, and none of them impact any of the core of doctrines of the Christian faith. Really. Now that's pretty good news, you think? <laughs> Let me share with you some of the types of variants in that 99%. Just give you an idea. One of them is called the movable new, and new is N-U. It basically the Greek letter 
called new, it's letter N, pronounced new, can occur at the end of certain words if they precede a word that starts with a vowel. So it kind of moves around a little bit. An example would be in our, 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 our English language, uh, the word an, an, as in an apple. You don't say an uh, apple, you say an apple. It does not affect the meaning, though. So, the movable new. Another variant in that 99% is word order. Word order. Now, word order does matter in English. <laughs> For example, like the phrase, Hey, Dad, will you drive me over to the church? It's a lot different than, Hey, Dad, will you drive over me to the church? <laughs> that could be painful. So word order, word order does matter in English, but word order does not really matter much because the Greek of the New Testament is a highly in, in, inflected language. The syntax or meaning of a sentence is tied more to how the word is spelled than the order of the words. For example, there are many different ways to say, God loves Paul. God loves Paul. You could say, you know, God loves Paul. You could say, Paul loves God. You could also say, loves God, Paul. You could say, loves Paul, God. God, Paul, loves. Paul, God, loves. There's so many different ways to do it. As long as God is what they call in grammar the nominative case, uh, the subject of the verb, and Paul is in the accusative case, the object of the trans, trans, uh, transitive verb. All of those sentences mean... God loves Paul. Sorry if I got too deep there into grammar for you. but <laughs> Word order. Spelling. Spelling is another variant. There are lots of spelling errors, which is understandable since there, are, uh, there was no standardized spelling. No spell check going on in those papyrus scrolls and all that. For example, the name for John can either have two N's or one N. But that's a variant. For some, the article the appears before a name, like the Paul or the Mary. That would be a variant. And the variance of spelling, word order, use of the article the and the movable new makes up about 94% of all those variants in that 99% category. And then you have some, uh, some variants, the 5%, that are meaningful but not viable. In other words... It's not a spelling error, not a word order, so it is, it is meaningful, but not a viable variant. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, one manuscript has, we were gentle among you, while another manuscript has, we were horses among you. <laughs> what? The word, the word gentle, the word horses, are spared, spelled, spelled very similar in the Greek. And it's a very meaningful variant to say you were gentle versus you were horses, obviously. But this isn't viable, viable at all. It wouldn't make sense in that way. And basically that covers the 99% of the 400,000 variants, which leaves us with 4,000 meaningful and viable variants. Okay, well, he got it down to 4,000, Pastor Jim, thanks, but I'm still not quite sure about that. 
This is why having a lot of manuscripts is a very good thing, so we can ask questions like, what do most manuscripts say? Or what do, what do the oldest manuscripts say? Sometimes it is a slip of a pen. They might miss a line. But none of these 4,000 meaningful and viable variants touch one doctrine of the Christian faith. And so there might be in that, that, that 1%, those 4,000 variants, things going on there, but none of it touched the doctrine of the Christian faith. Let me try to share some examples of the kind of variants we're talking about here. There are uh, newer manuscripts, and, there, and then there are older manuscripts. Um, for, for example, Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, <clears throat> in the newer manuscripts, say, Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And then in older manuscripts, it says, Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus is left out there. It's not in that. But it is in the newer manuscripts. And textual scholars call this an expansion of piety. Expansion of piety is making names or titles longer. Does it affect the meaning of the text? It's Christ, Jesus Christ. It, it, it doesn't. There's also another portion of Scripture, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And newer manuscripts say, give an account this way, it says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then older manuscripts just have, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God. It doesn't say the gospel of the kingdom of God. In the same old manuscripts, the gospel of Matthew has the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. Three times, used three times in that. So scholars call this harmonization of the text, where they, they look at other passages in the manuscripts, and, and then they, they see they have additional words, and they harmonize them. And again, it does not change the intention behind the text. There's also another portion of Scripture that talks about in Matthew 27, verse 35, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, and that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then in the, the uh, older manuscript, all that's there is, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Okay, where'd all that other stuff go? The quote from the Old Testament going on there. This is another harmonization of the text because in that same manuscript in John chapter 19, verse 24, it says, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sometimes the quoting is, is, is played out totally in the scripture instead of just saying what happened. The, the harmonization of the text happens. Finishing the quote happens, as I just mentioned there. And another portion of Scripture talks about that too, but uh, I think I've given you enough there. Again, meaningful and viable, but does not affect our faith at all. Now, there's one portion of Scripture in Ch John chapter 5, verse 4. 
It says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well uh, uh, of whatever disease he had. And in the NIV, you can't even find it. That verse is not even in there at all. It seems as though this verse about the angel was commentary that was off to the side. It's kind of in the margins. That eventually got added into some newer manuscripts. So this is a, basically the overview of the kind of variants that make up that 1% of meaningful and viable variants. Now, I know we're over time, but there are three big ones that you might have heard of before, and I just want to touch briefly on those. Uh, mention these three portions of Scripture because these are the three that biblical critics go after and want us to think that they are representative of the entire Bible. Those big three are 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. You can write these down and look them up yourself if you want. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. There's Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And then there's John chapter 7, verses 50, uh, John chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through chapter 8, verse 11. So that's John chapter 7, verse 53, all the way to chapter 8, verse 11. Those are the big three Bible critics go after. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And then, in another manuscript, it says, For there are three that testify. What happened to all that other stuff? It's been added. What, earlier, earliest manuscripts don't have it. And 10% of the manuscripts have it before the 10th century. And this addition more than likely did not come from John's pen. And a later scribe was probably wanting to reinforce the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, does it change that? No, it doesn't at all. Mark chapter 16, that large portion of Scripture there, you read through it, it's the longest single variant. Most are letters and words and phrases. It is in some early manuscripts, but not in some of what are considered the best early manuscripts. Not found in some, some of those early translations. Probably are added because some scribes felt Mark ended too abruptly. And if you are aware of, of this portion of Scripture, we don't lose much at all if we don't have that, except maybe snake handling. <laughs> That's in there. John chapter 7, that, that other portion of Scripture there as well too, all through chapter 8, very likely not originally in, in John. And this is where the stuff impacts your heart. In the 10th century, it was found written on the sides of some manuscripts. It did not get into the actual text until the 14th century. Sometimes it appears in other places within John's Gospel, and even appears sometimes in, in Luke. Where did it come from? Not sure. That's why in your Bible, it sometimes stops there and has a line and says, this is actually not something that's found in Scripture, early manuscripts. And now some scholars believe that even though it was not originally in John, that it is a true story that had been passed down through the centuries. These are the most difficult variants to deal with. And really, that, that's it. That's all. The thing to remember is that there are no doctrines that are impacted because of these variants found in the Bible. Keep that in mind. This is just an example of God preserving the text, different people copying, thousands of manuscripts, different regions, over time, yet we still know what, we, what was originally there.
And that's incredible. And during the last 150 years, we have found about 130 new super old manuscripts. And do you know how many uh, new readings were found in that? Zero. Nothing new. These manuscripts have just confirmed the readings we have already. The Bible has been copied so much, so early, that we cannot hide the original text. And we have a little extra that we, we know was not in there. And should that bother you? Well, suppose you have a fleet of 250 16-wheeler tractor trailers, and you take them to, in to have all of the 4,000 tires inspected. They come back and tell you that they have checked all the tires, and they discover that there are three that are flat. Out of the 4,000 tires, three are flat. Would you freak out and say, oh, no, all my tires are flat? The whole fleet is wiped out. I don't think you would. Many of these meaningful and viable variants will appear in a lot of translations. It's in the footnotes, with a footnote or in, uh, in italics. And why, are they, why are they there? Just in case you know what's going on, where they got everything. Again, just remember, God breathed it. The apostles wrote it down. Men copied it. They copied it a lot, and they copied it early as well. And we can be confident in the Bible we have in our hands. It is really from God. And because it really is from God, maybe we should be reading it more, because he wants to speak to you. I'm going to pray, and worship team's going to come up and lead us in one more song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together, and thank you, Lord, for helping us well, again just to understand your word and what's going on here. And I pray, Lord, that today, as we've gone over a bit, but Lord, that you would just continue to help us remember that the Bible that we have in our hands is from you. And Lord, if we have any doubts in our minds, we should actually hopefully be reassured about that today. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to speak to our hearts about that, how this is your word. We need to value it. We need to be reading it. We need to live by it. So help us, Lord, uh, remember those things. And I pray that as we move on with this service and conclude with the song, Lord, that you would continue to speak to our hearts about your word and how it is living and active and how we need to trust it and read it more. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.